please pray with me. Grant us, O Lord, not to be anxious about earthly things, but to love things heavenly. And even now, while we are placed among things that are passing away, to hold fast to those that shall endure. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God, forever and ever. Amen. Please be seated. Well, Jesus is talking about money again. He has a lot to say about money, of course, especially in Luke's gospel. He challenges the world's modes of financial dealing. He confronts unjust and exploitative financial systems. He calls us to care for the poor, none of which is news to you all. But what struck me as I read this morning's gospel text is the way that Jesus frames this particular episode in the conversation. Because what Jesus says this morning is that money is really about faithfulness. Did you catch this? Whoever is faithful in a very little is faithful also in much. And whoever is dishonest in a very little is dishonest also in much. If then you have not been faithful with the dishonest wealth, who will entrust to you the true riches? And if you have not been faithful with what belongs to another, who will give you what is your own? For Jesus, the conversation about money is a conversation about faithfulness or unfaithfulness. And when we turn to our first reading from the prophet Amos, we start to see why this might be the case. Because the prophet describes seemingly good religious people. They keep the Sabbath. They celebrate the new moon festival. They go through the motions of honoring the Lord. But he seems to say that all the time they're checking their phones. They're glancing at their watches. Can you hurry it up a little bit? The Sabbath is meant to be a day of worship, of fellowship, as a sign of their covenant relationship with God and God's desire to dwell in the midst of his people. But what these folks feel primarily is frustration. Because instead of receiving it as a gift, as an opportunity for freedom from the constant struggle to do and produce and accomplish, they experience the Sabbath primarily as an obstacle to the economic activity that lets them get ahead. It's getting in the way. When will the new moon be over, they ask, so that we may sell grain, and the Sabbath so that we may offer wheat for sale? We have business to do. Hurry it up. Their faithfulness to money comes into direct conflict with their faithfulness to God until eventually they stop caring about faithfulness even to the truth or righteous dealing. We will make the ephah small and the shekel great, they say, and practice deceit with false balances, buying the poor for silver and the needy for a pair of sandals, till even other people become commodities, something to be traded, bought and sold. But you notice that it all starts with disordered worship. As Jesus says, you can't serve God and mammon from the Aramaic word mamona, wealth, the money God, as a priest friend of mine used to like to say, the almighty dollar. Now, okay, maybe this sounds extreme. Amos, he's a prophet. We don't buy and sell people, right? There are laws against that. We don't cut corners and nudge decimals in our business dealings. We're, We're upright people. We sit in church for 
like an hour and a half. We don't even complain about the length of the sermon afterwards. <laughs> but this happens in subtle ways as well. As our daily prayer time just starts to get shortened a little bit. As the work piles up and our priorities and our decision making ever so slightly begins to shift. And without even noticing we've done it, we begin to let worldly success and worldly demands or what other people think about worldly success and worldly demands, or wealth, comfort, the sense of security that comes from having enough. It's so easy for these things to become the real goal and driver of our decision making. But Jesus makes it clear we can't have it both ways. There's faithfulness and there's unfaithfulness. There's not a fence in the middle that you can sit on. Either you're serving God and he's Lord of your heart or money is. These are the only options. But fortunately, Jesus doesn't just give us a lecture or a rebuke or even a set of principles for how to relate to money in a holy way. Instead, the first thing and the main thing he does is he tells a story. And y'all, this is a really strange story. Because Jesus seems to say, here is an example of an unfaithful, disloyal, untrustworthy man. Be more like that guy. You want to run that bias again, Jesus? <laughs> Not sure I heard you right. Which is why this parable gives interpreters fits. But Jesus knows what he's doing. Okay, this is a general interpretive principle for the scriptures. Jesus knows what he's doing. He's not, oh shoot, I didn't mean to say that. No, wait. It's absolutely deliberate. Because Jesus wants to shake us and shock us out of our usual assumptions so that we can change. So we can begin to see what true faithfulness actually looks like, that it might not be quite what we imagined. So let's take a look at this story for a few minutes. Once upon a time, there was a wealthy man who had a steward, a property manager. And he heard, apparently from people who he knew and believed to be trustworthy, that his manager was wasting his wealth. Now, the Greek word there, by the way, for wasting is the same word Jesus just used in the previous parable for the prodigal son. He's squandering his employer's possessions. And the rich man says, oh, heck no. No, that's going to stop right now. He calls in the manager. What's this I hear about you? Awkward silence. This is unacceptable. Hand over the books. You're fired. You can't be manager anymore. And he walks out. Now, the steward has a crisis on his hands. Managing the property of an extremely rich landowner is a great gig if you can get it. Status, significance, authority. And now... He's waving farewell to all of that. It's gone. It's over. What am I going to do, he thinks. I'm about to be reduced to nothing. I can't dig ditches. I'm not strong enough. Bad back and all that. Standing on the street corner, I'd be ashamed. All these people know me. I can't go beg. What other options do I have? What am I going to do? And then the light bulb goes on. I know what I'll do. And so he starts to call in people who rent land from his master or have some sort of business dealings with him. How much is it you owe my master, by the way? Let's start this conversation on the right footing. A uh, hundred measures of oil? 
tell you what, let's make it 50. Just sign on the dotted line. And of course, they assume the manager's acting on behalf of his employer. They don't know he's been fired. But at the same time, for obvious reasons, they're not going to ask too many questions. <laughs> 50 measures of oil is a lot of money. You could employ a day laborer for something like a year and a half with that much money. And as the first debtor leaves, the manager calls out, next, please. How much is it you owe? 100 measures of wheat? Here, quick, write 80, which is a similar financial deduction. Now, this strategy might not be immediately obvious to all of us. It probably was for Jesus' disciples as they listened to this, and it is Jesus' disciples that he's speaking to here. In the world of ancient Greco-Roman society, relationships and economics are tightly interwoven. That's not completely untrue now. A wealthy, servant, a wealthy person serves as patron to less wealthy people, and they have certain obligations to him in return. As one commentary says, the steward essentially sets himself up as a benefactor to these people, and he can expect to receive hospitality from them in response. Now, just so we're clear, this is a thoroughly underhanded plan. His master has not authorized anything like this, and the steward knows it. But it's also really clever. Because, yeah, he's been fired as manager, but nobody else knows that yet. And that means for a few hours, until he actually hands these books over, he still has access to all his master's resources. And he decides to use that access for everything it's worth. It's risky, but not really. Because at this point, what does he have to lose? He's already fired. Another scholar named Kenneth Bailey, who lived in the Middle East for several decades, says that when huge amounts are knocked off a bill like this, news is going to spread around the village pretty fast. There are going to be a lot of people feeling very celebratory all of a sudden. And so, of course, the master's going to hear about it. But at that point, what's he going to do? I mean, he could say, no, wait, I didn't authorize that. He doesn't work for me anymore. But the papers are all signed. Taking it back is going to damage his business relationships with these key partners. And all these suddenly very happy people are going to look at him and be like, well, that's not very generous. He's going to look bad. And so what happens? Jesus says, the master commended the dishonest steward for his shrewdness. I've got to hand it to you. That was a really smart move. You got me. It's underhanded, it's sneaky, it's clever, and it pays off. For the sons of this world, says Jesus, are more shrewd in dealing with their own generation than the sons of light. Now, please note, Jesus describes the manager as dishonest in this narrative. He's a son of this world. That's not a compliment coming from Jesus. In case anyone's unclear about this, Jesus is not saying that you should cheat your employers to line your own pockets. Okay, just for the record, we, we are being recorded here. But what Jesus is saying is that there's something we can and should learn from that unscrupulous manager. Because in worldly terms, he was super smart. Maybe not a good man, but a shrewd one. He showed foresight. He faced up to reality. He saw what was about to happen. He recognized that his access to his master's resources was limited, but hadn't quite ended yet. 
And he saw the moment of opportunity and he seized it. Essentially, as my New Testament professor once put it, he used someone else's resources to secure his own future. He used someone else's resources to secure his own future. And what Jesus is saying is, you should do that too. Wait, really? Yeah, really. Because this is Jesus' point. Whatever wealth or possessions or financial resources you have don't, in fact, belong to you. You didn't bring those things into existence. God did. And even the investment savvy that you use, your ability, your skill, your hard work, your intelligence, you didn't bring yourself into existence either. God created you with these capabilities. They're gifts, which means you're a manager, you're a steward. And that gives you a lot of authority to do what you want with his stuff, but not forever. Sooner or later, the stewardship has to be handed back over. We have a saying for this. You can't take it with you. Which is also the fundamental problem with the money God. It demands our loyalty and our faithfulness, but money is not faithful. Ultimately, it will fail you. And a lot of times, I think for a lot of us, I'm including myself in this, Scripture's teaching about money feels terribly risky. Give 10% off the top of everything I make, that, that feels like a lot. Incidentally, Jesus doesn't say anything about 10% in this parable. His numbers are either 20% or 50. Just saying. <laughs> but the story makes it clear if you understood the way that things really are, if you could see reality as it is in light of the kingdom of God, if you could see as clearly as that dishonest steward understood the ways of this world, you wouldn't hesitate. You would seize the moment. You would take the risk. Because like that steward, you also have a short window of opportunity to invest in your own future using someone else's resources. And it's the smart thing to do. How do you do that? You do it the same way the steward did, by giving it away. Make friends for yourselves by means of unrighteous mammon, says Jesus, so that when it fails, they may receive you into the eternal habitations. Money won't last, so for goodness sake, invest in something that will. Invest in relationships, invest in people, invest in the kingdom. Jesus is not saying you can't have anything to do with money. He's saying use it, use it shrewdly. But use it not according to the wisdom of this world, but according to the wisdom of the kingdom of God. Because, see, we know something that that untrustworthy steward didn't know. Think about this with me for just a moment. Jesus doesn't tell us much about the master in this story. On the one hand, he lets the manager go without punishing him. That seems gracious. He allows this redistribution to go forward. On the other hand, he also admires the steward's worldly-wise shrewdness, or at least he compliments him for it. He ends up looking generous because somebody else just gave away a lot of his possessions, it's hard to say whether he truly is that generous or not. But here's the point. Whether or not the master in the story is in fact gracious and generous, ours is. 
Everything we have and everything we are comes from God, and it all belongs to him, and yet he shares with us freely. He gives of himself. He pours himself out on our behalf. This is why Jesus is here. Our epistle reading says, there is one God and there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself, gave himself as a ransom for all. In Jesus, we see God divest himself of his own glory. In Jesus, we see God empty his pockets. We see God empty his veins. He spends himself as a ransom to buy us back, to make us his friends, not because he needs us to invite him into our homes, but because he wants to invite us into his. In Jesus, we see what the true master is like, a God you can't outgive, a God who is more generous than we could imagine, a God who is faithful in his self-giving love, even to the point of death beyond the grave. And Jesus, in his faithfulness to the Father, is inviting us to become like him, to join him in giving away his stuff. Because, and here's the point, that's what true faithfulness looks like. That's what God's own faithfulness looks like. Because it's only those who are faithful with unrighteous mammon, with what belongs to another, who can be entrusted with the true riches. Only those who give generously and don't stop at 10%, who give without holding back, who discover what true extravagance looks like because they're on the receiving end. I tell you, make friends for yourselves by means of unrighteous mammon so that when it fails, because it will, they may receive you into the eternal habitations. Do you see it? It's risky, but not really. Because the money and the possessions won't last anyway. But also because it's not ours to begin with. What could be more fun than giving away somebody else's stuff? Especially when you know that that someone delights to give, that you're joining him in participating in what gives him joy. And when you know that in exchange, we receive an eternal home an eternal friendship, something unshakable, something that lasts, something that will not fail. Brothers and sisters, Jesus this morning is calling us to faithfulness. He's calling us to use someone else's resources to build the kingdom and in doing that to draw near to a God who is faithful and who secures our future. Jesus is calling us to pour ourselves out in his name so that on the day when we make an accounting of our stewardship of his resources, on the day when the accounts are settled, when the books are closed, he can entrust us with the true riches and he can welcome us into his dwelling. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, amen.